This is Negotiate X Podcast, show number 53, part A. You're listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online. Hey everyone, welcome to the NegotiateX podcast. My name is Nolan Martin. I'm your co-host, co-founder, and with me today, as always, good friend, co-host, co-founder, Aram Denisian. And Aram, do you want to introduce our guest for today's podcast? Yeah, I'll do that, uh, Nolan. Thanks. So folks, about six weeks ago, I came across an article entitled Five Tips to Avoid Controversial Topics at the Holiday Table. And I thought, what a great focus to shine uh, a spotlight on during the holiday season. So I reached out to the author to see if he might be willing to join us. And today we have Andy Allen on the program to not only discuss this recent article, but also just take a broader focus on how we might have a new year perspective on conflict as uh, 2022 comes to an end and we get ready to jump into 2023. Andy has written numerous articles on conflict, truth, and relationships, and created a conversation starting game called The Words Project. He lives in Orlando, Florida, currently working as an editor for Crew Resources. He's been a missionary in North Africa and Central Asia, as well as on campuses throughout the United States. He loves to surf, to read, and to sing silly songs with his three young kids. Andy, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I actually got to surf this morning. And uh, yeah, it's so great. I'm not a good surfer by any means, <laughs> but I do love being out in the ocean. You're often based out of Nebraska, right? Yeah. Surfing's got to be a little harder in those cornfields. You know, <laughs> I dreamed of bringing surfing to Nebraska because now they have these indoor wave pools and they're pretty good. In fact, I went so far as to pay a dollar at GoDaddy to get Nebraska-surf.com or .org. <laughs> and I had it for a year and I thought, what am I going to do with this? And then I realized that really to be successful, I'd have to raise about $25 million of venture capital. <laughs> and I thought... Is this what I want to be doing, <laughs> bringing surfing to Nebraska for the next five years of my life? No, maybe someday. And so I'm so grateful to be close to the ocean. It's like a 45-minute drive, so I wake up early anytime there's any chance of surf, and I get out there and I paddle around and miss waves, and it's like every day, the greatest day of my life. So where do you live, Andy? In Orlando on the kind of southeast side, so it's just a straight shot to Cocoa Beach. Yeah, I'm in Lithia, so I'm on just south of Brandon, right next to Tampa. So, Oh, awesome. We're thrown stow away, or a stones throw away from each other. So, all right, yeah. let's jump into the podcast. So as Aram said, our focus today is going to be about how we might adjust our relationship with conflict going into this new year. Can we start by getting a sense of your own journey as it relates to managing conflict, any key moments along the way for you, Andy? So the first time I remember somebody resolving conflict with me positively, I was a senior at Penn State University. I was involved in a Christian student organization. It was called Crew, the company that I work for now, actually. And we had a leader who was on staff there. He was paid to 
lead and mentor students, engage people in spiritual conversations. And I had mentioned in some context where this guy was around needing to go home and see my family. I lived eight hours away. I didn't have a car. He reached out to me and was like, hey, why don't you borrow my car? I thought it was so nice of this guy to do it. He had three kids at the time, had a busy life, but he let me borrow his car for a weekend to go see my family. So I went on that trip back to Cincinnati from Little State College, Pennsylvania, and I spent the weekend there. And just on a whim, I decided to stay one more day. So instead of coming back Sunday and giving him the car back Sunday night, I just stayed into Monday and then I traveled back and gave him the car Monday night. I think I might have sent him a text, maybe just saying, hey, I'll be a day late. I don't even remember if I did that, but I just showed up at his door Monday night with his keys like nothing happened. So I hand him the keys and I'm turning to leave and he says, hey, Andy, I need to tell you something. And very calmly, he said, you know, when I loaned you my car, I expected that you'd have it back on Sunday night. And on Monday, we needed to use that car to do some things with the family. He said, now we've figured it out. We were able to make it work, but that was hard for our family. And in the future, if we do lend you something, we'd appreciate you bringing it back and the time we discussed. And if not, that you'd let me know or give me a chance to talk to you about it. And that was it. I don't remember what I said, but I still remember that. That was about 21 years ago when I graduated. I still to this day remember it because of the way he engaged with me. And he gave me the reality of the situation, how he perceived it, but there was clear there was no relational loss there. I think that's the first time I remember somebody really engaging with me in conflict and saying, this was not good, what you did. It's okay, but here, let's talk about next time. So that's the good. I would say, I thought I was great at managing conflict until I got married. <laughs> I've been married now for coming up in 10 years. And I thought I had learned a lot about conflict. From that leader, I learned how to, to I thought, manage conflict. But looking back, anytime I would engage with my wife in any serious conflict those first couple of years of marriage, the tears would start to fall. Hers, not mine. But... <laughs> And it took me until the tears would start to fall to think, "Uh uh-oh, I did something wrong. Up until the tears, I thought I was doing really well. I was working through conflict. And then my wife would cry and she said, I need a break. And for me, I thought, "Uh uh-oh, I'm not as good as I think I am about working through conflict and issues. And what I realized was my approach to conflict was like a courtroom drama. I was the lawyer. I was presenting evidence making arguments, trying to show how right I was and work through like the facts of the case, you know, to show, oh, I'm in the right. What my wife needed (laughs) was someone very different. She didn't need lawyer Andy, as we started to call it. She needed husband Andy. Andy with his arms lowered, not defensive, but defenseless and open, willing to listen to be wrong instead of somebody like, in the courtroom scene in A Few Good Men, just hammering at <laughs> the uh, witness. You can't handle the truth. That's right. That's what I thought about my wife. Oh, you can't handle the truth? It's like, no, I can't handle conflict. <laughs> yeah, that, so it's so good. Well, I'm sure we're going to get more into this as we kind of how we frame these conversations, the focus on being right, the facts of the case, right? I, it's And I feel like I, I hear that so often from 
colleagues and can, you know, and, and, and folks that we train and clients, my students, right? It's just about proving how much more right I am and not about how I show up, right? Not addressing the relationship piece too. And so there's this tension, isn't there, about trying, how do I manage, how do I protect and preserve the relationship, which is important, and still at some point kind of work through the challenge. As a side note, there's a funny little video called It's Not About the Nail, um, <laughs> which... <laughs> which, which, which Andy, you need to watch. Um, it's a, it's a little video, not about the nail. It's exactly on what you were talking about with your wife, the separation of intent versus impact. That was what I took away from your story about your, this, this person who let you borrow the car and who handled it so graciously, right. Being able to give you benefit of the doubt on intent and still being able to address the impact of your actions. Yeah, that's right. And there's a book called crucial conversations which I've found mm -hmm. to be very helpful. And one of the, the key issues that they say is when we engage in conflict, some of our deeper instinctual feelings take over. So we are often in fight or flight mode, fight, flight, maybe freeze or fawn or some of the extras that you hear about. And so when we engage in conflict, we're not often prepared. Like our body is mm -hmm. not physiologically preparing us well to manage conflict unless we're able to think about it and then tone down those instinctual things to get more into our, I think, our prefrontal cortex and have more better decision making than these snap judgments. And I think that's one of the first keys is when we're entering into conflict to be aware of it. I think this guy I really looked up to, I think he was aware of it and aware that he could have hurt me. He could have said hurtful things, but instead you could tell he was calm. I think his heartbeat was like at the, the normal level and not elevated. So I have to remember when I'm engaging in conflict with my wife, with my kids, with my coworkers, it's like, if, can I take a breath and make sure, okay, I'm not just reacting. I have a safe presence here and I have a calm presence because we want to resolve conflict. If we're not in a place to do that, it doesn't matter how great our argument is. It doesn't matter our, how amazing our words can be. They're just going to fall on deaf ears because people need to know that you're trustworthy and need to know your care. You need to know that you care about them. And we do that non-verbally so much. The next question I was going into was talking about why these conversations so often go wrong. I feel like you've, you've already started to answer that, which is we have this kind of reactual reacting approach that gets the better of us, very deep instinctual. We tend to want to prove ourselves right. And again, in this first article that I, I've read of yours, you know, you, you just talked about these controversial dinner discussions that occur, especially around the holidays, because we're getting together. Maybe they're somewhat inevitable. They're often incredibly awkward. I love the reference to you know, <laughs> the milking animal scene for meet the parents. <laughs> so, you know, why do these happen and why do they seem to happen at the holidays when we're getting together with people we love and care about? Right. And why do these conversations just sometimes go like really, really wrong? Well, can we admit together that we're often at our worst at the holidays? Aren't we? Do you guys feel that way? I feel like, especially with little ones in the season, this is like the stressful season for me. And so when I'm coming into dinners, when I'm doing things, I'm distracted. I am stressed. There's a lot going on in the back of my mind. And so I am not as present as I want to be, which as a Christian in the Christmas season, especially bums me out because I'm celebrating the birth of my savior. Jesus is the most important person to me. And yet I often think back to the holidays afterward, like I missed an exit on the highway. 
Like, oh, where did that go? How did I miss that? So distracted with everything else. And the holidays are just that, aren't they? It was stressed family members coming together. And often in conflict, it's not about what's in the surface. It's about what's deeper down. And our families have deep down stuff. And it's not sunshine and rainbows when you're digging up. We have hurt misunderstanding for years and years that comes up and some people we just see them once or twice a year and so it's really set up for failure in a lot of ways unfortunately (laughs) i think our culture plays into that as well so we're at our worst we're already stressed we're seeing people with whom we have maybe a lot of baggage and we're only seeing them for a couple hours you know three times a year if that i don't know if you would resonate with that do you feel like the holidays are a recipe for stress and, and everything around us, right, from the music to everything else is telling us that's not how it's supposed to be. So I think I would add to everything you're saying. I completely agree. Distracted, stressed, not as present. There's hurt, misunderstanding. There's these deep things. I'm seeing some of that I only see once or twice a year at the most, perhaps, is the internal turmoil, right, churn around, and it's not supposed to be this way. It's the holidays. Everyone's, you know, there's supposed to be, you know, carols being sung and bells ringing and, you know, reindeer on the roof and and there's, uh, yeah, and it just feels like, so now it's even this more internal thing, which is what's wrong with me? Um, what's wrong with us? Uh, because we can't seem to get through it without a fight. That's very insightful. We have this ideal image in our minds of how it should go and what our family should be like. And that's often another source of our trouble right there is that we are comparing already to this idealized false family that doesn't exist, the perfect family. And so when ours falls short in some way, we either attack ourselves, blame ourselves, or we blame other people. Either way, it's a recipe for conflict because we do one of two things. We withdraw and isolate ourselves, or we attack and we fight with other people. And ultimately, it's this deeper surface stuff to be valued. We want to be valued. We want to be known and loved. We want to connect with others. But we just seems like we have this broken places that we're unable to fix that we're, we're just not able to get there because we can't, could you imagine if you just went to the, the dinner table at Christmas? Like, I would just like y'all to tell me how good I am and tell me how much you love me, please. Can we just spend five minutes doing that? And then we'll go around the table and everybody can say how much we love each other. We don't do that. We just, we, we look for subtext in order to communicate value to each other. Rather than just speaking what we desire, I just wish that everybody would tell me I'm awesome. And we just do that. Instead, we look for ways to get others to do that in some way. Yeah. So is that one of your tips that you're going to give for how we can avoid controversy at the dinner table? Just everyone tell each other how I'm awesome? That's right. (laughs) I was thinking about that. Yeah, why not do this encouragement thing? And one of my tips in general is to say the thing that we're thinking. In our culture, we're just so bad at that, to actually say the thing. When it comes to conflict, what if we just said, we're thinking, hey, I want to talk to you about something, and I'm really scared that it's going to hurt your feelings. Hmm. If we voice these things that are going on, some of that requires forethought. And I think in the article I wrote about the holiday conversations, it really sums up, or it can be summed up by preparation. We spend time thinking about the holidays. Usually it's worrying about it late at night, kind of dramatizing in her head how it's going to go, negatively talking about it, thinking about it while we're on the way to work, while we're getting ready, while we're cooking. But what if we spent that time strategizing, strategically thinking about how to set up 
our conversations over the holidays for success. I think if you're able to do that, to put some forethought into how it's going to go, that's 90% of the way right there. Let's have a plan for this. You wouldn't go into a football game without a strategy. Every coach has a strategy. Going in without is a recipe for failure. And so what is our strategy? If we have anything, you're already ahead of the game. So I think most of my tips revolve around strategy, thinking ahead, providing some simple things. What are the trouble spots? Is there a troublemaker in your family that's going to say something awkward? And if you can't think of them, maybe you're the troublemaker. It's worth considering. <laughs> Am I the troublemaker? You could ask a family member, hey, do I say awkward things at the table? <laughs> Am I awkward? I'll answer that on behalf of Nolan and say he absolutely is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so he, keep going. I don't want to stop yeah. you there. Yeah. That's great. I love I love the, what you said about preparation, Andy, which is, and I think about so many other things around the holiday, right? We we think about how we're decorating. We think about meals and we put thought into and when, when does whatever we're serving need to go into the oven? And we think about gifts and all this other stuff. How much time do we spend any amount of time thinking about conversations, conversations. that occur. And yeah. It's almost like we spend so much time setting the table that we don't cook the meal. Those are the things we spend. We buy presents. We set up our Christmas tree. We do all these things and we expect that those are the pathways to a great holiday. When in reality, it's preparing for these connections. And it seems unnatural to us to prepare for communication but it's really the best thing to do. I think about The Tonight Show, these late night shows where the hosts of the show get up and they give a monologue and they seem so natural, so off the cuff, a Jimmy Kimmel, a Jimmy Fallon. You look at them and you think, oh man, they make it seem so easy. But what you don't know is they spend hours and hours every day rehearsing that monologue. So they get it right. They, they're perfectly timed. And so, so much preparation goes into making it look easy. And I think that's what we need to do with our family as well. One of the things I was thinking, I did this with my family one year around Christmas. For Christmas, I got my parents and my brother uh, a code to do the strength finders. I don't know if you're familiar with Clifton strength finders, but it'll tell you your top five strengths. And then all of a sudden, we had like two hours of conversation preloaded. It's like, what are your strengths? What are your strengths? We talked about them as a family. We saw what we had in common, where we were different. The, they cost like 10 bucks each to get those top five. You could do a free assessment of personality like Myers-Briggs, the Berkman maybe, something like that. Even like, I don't know what friend's character you are. You could do anything <laughs> to prime the pump or come up with a list of questions. Hey, what was the best thing that you experienced this year? What's your favorite Christmas memory? Coming in with a list of questions just helps ease the gaps in the silence where somebody awkwardly thinks I'm going to jump in or somebody is ready with something. They just want to get out there. And so if you don't give them a chance to do that or you don't allow the conversation to lapse, I think you're just you're setting yourself up for success. Yeah, I have to I have to say that I, I love those uh, suggestions you just gave, preferable over like what was the third headline uh, as I scrolled through my you know Fox News feed uh, that's going to inflame and in incite everyone <laughs> at the table. So much more constructive what, what what you're discussing, and we know, like I said, there are, there are the troublemakers maybe or the people that you feel like you just want to rein in a little bit at the table. And so if you can give them a role at the table, that's huge. 
don't do it all yourself. In fact, if you're hosting or you're playing a role, remember that everything you're doing, you're away, you're distracted. And so if you're nervous about what's going on and the communication at the table, allow yourself to be fully present and give the other responsibilities like keeping dishes warm or refilling waters or condiments or anything like that, give them to the troublemakers. Give them to people so they have a job, they'll feel valued, and then you can be present. Sorry, and they get to serve, right? So it switches the way you engage the troublemakers. I keep getting it. Keep, keep going. That's great. You know, we're not going to be able to present or to prevent awkward things from being said, I would say. Somebody's going to come in. It's okay. But we can be prepared for that as well. And a book that really flipped my thinking on conflict was one called Between the Words by Norm Wakefield. This is a powerful book. It's on listening. And one of the things he said that I've never heard before, that's so insightful, is that understanding is not agreeing. Understanding somebody's perspective does not mean you agree. And so when somebody drops a bomb in the middle of the table, I can't believe that this person did this and politics or something. It's okay to restate their view. In fact, that's what people want. They want to be heard and they're going to go about it in an uncomfortable, inappropriate way. But it's okay. I don't need to disagree with that right there. I can restate what they said without agreeing and without getting into it. And in fact, I think that might be the way to tone things down. Somebody says something, you say, you know, it sounds like you have some very intense and strong thoughts about dinosaurs. And I'd love to follow up on that with you afterwards, but I'm distracted now. Remind me to ask you about that later. So you're acknowledging what's going on. You're saying, I'd like to talk about it. And I'm just pivoting there. And if you have something else you want to say, like, I really want to know, Jim, how was your college experience going? Or something like that, some way to pivot. But we can restate what somebody said and say, let's revisit this another time. I think that's what people want. So they'll feel heard. They know they're going to get a chance to talk about it. And we've just redirected things. So I think being able to do that, it's hard to imagine that by me restating something, I'm not tacitly approving it, but that's reality. That restating something does not equal, I think you're right. And I use the word interesting. That's an interesting idea because interesting is a very neutral word. So I have a lot of spiritual discussions with people. And frankly, I've heard a lot of ideas that I think are like, do not hold water in terms of the realities of spiritual life. But usually I don't want to just punch somebody in the face with what they're believing, even if I significantly disagree, what would be the point? So instead, usually I would say, that's an interesting idea. And it usually is. When people have ideas that I don't think are right, they usually are pretty interesting. They believe in the flying spaghetti monster. I really do want to know, tell me more about that. <laughs> if you believe the earth is flat, I want to know. I do. It is interesting. Like, tell me about that. And I think some of it is being open to different viewpoints. I, I think I've try to be more open. It doesn't mean I'm going to accept them, but if I don't crack the door on on viewpoints, how am I going to learn? And so the, even the holiday table can be a place to do that within reason and then thinking, okay, this is let's put a pin in that and we'll talk about it later after dessert. Yeah. I know you give some other advice. We'll push folks to your article to see some of the other advice you get there. What you're talking about right now though is this idea of being open 
and, and it feels like sometimes the root of this is there's some truth involved, a truth for us or a truth for them. And, and, and not just what the facts are, but even how we feel about them. And, um, you know, you've written about this, you've written a little about kind of seeking truth and how challenging that can be. Can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, how your framing for investigating differences and perceptions and perspectives? Well, it's interesting. I I'm very passionate about truth, but at the holiday table, and in our relationships, I would argue it's not about truth as regards facts and beliefs and ideas, but it's about value. We as individuals, we want to be valued. And I think value is about being known and accepted. Hmm. And like I said earlier, we just don't go up to people and say, can you tell me that I'm known and accepted? Can you show that to me? So we look for places and ways to do that. And one of the ways we like to do that is by getting people to agree with us and by winning, winning arguments, winning conversations. I, I love playing basketball. And I remember a point I was in college, I was playing pickup basketball with a friend. He was not very good at basketball. He came out to spend time with me. He was a great friend. He was just wasn't great at basketball. And I was yelling at him on the court. He missed the shot. They yelling at him, get his, come on, what are you doing? And he had the look on his face when I yelled at him, crestfallen, sad. And in that moment, something clicked for me. Like, why do I care so much about him playing basketball? I'm coming, I'm not going to make the NBA. I'm coming out to have fun and play. And yet something happened where my performance and our team's performance was attached to my value. And I had to switch my thinking to say, no, I can't care more about this silly game of basketball that I do about caring for my friend. And so we have to get past this idea of our arguments and truths are where our value exists. Because if we can't get to that point where I'm attaching my value to my beliefs about the president, to my beliefs about a political party, I am not going to be able to engage in those things well. So how do we find our value separate from that? And I think by committing to be truth seekers rather than truth holders. Hmm. If I'm approaching you guys saying, I have all the answers, nobody does. Nobody has all the answers. God alone has the full knowledge of truth. No one can claim to even have really, what, 10% of the truth that exists in the world? So if we come to conversations thinking we have all the answers, we are setting ourselves up for failure. Rather than saying, I might have some answers. I have theories. I have ideas. You have theories and ideas. So let's talk together and allow ourselves to sharpen each other, to move forward together. If we can see that and have that perspective, then we'll be able to navigate even really difficult conversations with graciousness. But that starts at humility. So it's the, the truth exists, but below that, we desperately want to feel valued. I don't know. Would you, would you agree with that? Does that yeah. resonate? That makes sense to me. But sometimes I'm like, I don't know. Maybe I'm just crazy. Maybe I'm really well, insecure. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the humility piece for sure. And I use that word and the, just the willingness to engage, which I feel like takes, takes some risk. Uh, some, some willingness to say, what if I am crazy? What if I am not right here? And, and as we, if we're talking about value, then my openness to listening to you could, 
jeopardize the value I thought I had because of this belief or idea that I was so grounded in. That feels a little scary. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think those are some of the trouble spots when we can see them. And it's a great place to dig in to say, okay, why, what is it about this thing? As I've explored that, some of the things where I rise up against it, I realize how much I kind of hang safety and security on certain precepts that I just have taken for granted growing up, like things in the medical community, you know, like, oh, I just, I trust this because I've just trusted it all my life and I don't question it. And somebody pokes at it, I realize it's poking at my safety, my sense of how the world works. And so if I do that, I have to look at that thing in particular and say, okay, why is this so important to me? Can I let it go? Am I willing to be wrong about it? Am I willing to grow? So it's a growth posture. I really appreciate that. And it's a process, but I think starting to see it and reflect on it and think about it just helps as we go into conversations over and over. I think even in a, like for a company and an organizational perspective, I think often as leaders, we're expected to know the most to be the best, and to have all the answers. But it's really the opposite. The best leaders are the ones who solicit help from those their peers, from above, from below. Anybody can make a contribution, and anyone can have the answers. And the leaders I've respected the most are the ones who brought me along on the journey. In fact, John Maxwell's Developing the Leader Within You is such a great book, and it basically says that the more leaders care about the people with whom they work and those who they lead, the more those people thrive. In John Maxwell's eyes, to be a great leader, you simply have to be going after something worthwhile and you have to care about the people. And I think that works with conflict too. When conflict happens over arguments, over discussions, you can reorient by saying, where are we headed? What do we want? What are our outcomes? And then how do we value each other in the process? How do we show care to each other in the process? You mentioned humility. Humility is so valuable, but it's something that's so hard to embody in the moment, I would say. Yeah. What's, how do you guys do it? What's your well, best practice for humility? <laughs> Lowering your defenses. Practicing humility. Nolan, how do you practice humility? <laughs> so in the military especially as an army officer, whenever you have non-commissioned officers, they're very quick to humble you um, and kind of put you in your place. And so I, and I mean, honestly, I probably learned some lessons along the way from, from all NCOs that have impacted my career while I was in the army. And so I think that, I don't know if I self-learned it, but I was taught humility and put in positions to where I started to realize, okay, wow, this organization's incredible, really, just going to figure out my piece of the pie here. So um, I don't think it was self-taught. I think I was taught humility, um, but it's definitely something that ingrained in me early in my, my career and something that I've tried to maintain throughout my life as I have transitioned and, and started to do other things. So how about you, Aaron? I think it's been a process of realizing what I don't know and, and, and a real commitment to being curious. Like, I feel like I'm married to someone who's really naturally curious and she's every time after I've had a conversation, right. She'll say, Hey, did you ask this and this? I'll be, 
nope, didn't. And, and so I think that like there's humility in, uh, as Andy was saying, just, you know, not knowing that I don't have all the truth. Um, and then really being committed to a process of, of seeking it, which reminds me, Andy, you use Sherlock Holmes as kind of an example of someone who would, who would do this, right. Who's a, who's a truth seeker. Um, and I, I, I'm a huge Holmes fan. Why, why Holmes? How do you see Holmes as, as demonstrative of a kind of this ideal that you're discussing? Man, I also am such a Sherlock Holmes fan and there's so much great Holmes content out there. It's amazing. Now we have family members. We have Enola Holmes, the sister. Like We have so much. And I love that in a postmodern culture where we often don't seem to have a great grasp on truth and how to find it, we have also an obsession with Sherlock Holmes, who was great at discovering truth that eluded so many other people. I think the first part that makes Sherlock Holmes so good at discovering it is that he loves the process. Like when Sherlock Holmes comes across a really difficult problem, how does he react? He gets excited. Most of the other people, and it makes sense, policemen, detectives in his world, in his orbit, they just want to solve the mystery as quickly as they can to get on to the next one. They live in this like revolving door of, we just have to get to the next one, solve it as fast as possible. Sherlock gets to choose what he does is this consulting detective and what he loves is to find mystery. And so as if we're going to be truth seekers and we're going to enter into conflict, we're going to manage relationships and get to the reality. I think we have to embrace and love the process. Usually when it comes to conflict, it's scary. I'm an avoider. I don't ever want to do it. But if I could adopt Sherlock Holmes posture, when some conflict comes around, I get, get excited. Hey, I really do believe it's an opportunity to move relationships forward in any sphere of our lives, in our organizations, with our bosses, with the people we lead. These moments of conflict are great times to grow a relationship if we know how to do it. So I love that about Sherlock Holmes that he loves the process. And then he resists making assumptions he chooses deliberately not to make assumptions. And so that frees him up to look at everything without any prejudice. He tries to be as unprejudiced, unbiased as possible. And then because of that, he's really able to discern what is meaningful and what is not meaningful. You know, he'll look at a crime scene and other detectives will look at the crime scene. Blank it. What's that other detective's name that he's usually like? Is the guy? Oh, not 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 Watson. So not, not his partner Watson. Who was going to ask about? Uh, yeah, the inspector. The yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, I'm blanking sorry. on his name. Oh, it drives me nuts. I'll probably think of it 20 minutes later. <laughs> These average quote unquote detectives, or we'll say even Watson, when he looks at a crime scene, he will make observations, but Holmes knows what is meaningful and what isn't. So when we're engaging with weighty matters and we're entering into conflict. Are we able to hold back our assumptions and are we able to figure out what's meaningful and what's meaningless? And I think usually it's the relational aspects that mean the most. It's not the facts, the truth. They have meaning, but the most important thing is do people feel safe and valued and cared for? And I would say in an organization, in a company, that's even more crucial because 
the larger your organizational structure, the larger your company is, I think the more likely people are to feel misunderstood and not known or valued by your organization. It's really hard. And so if you as a leader, when you're in conflict, you have a problem with an employee, a problem with somebody in your organization, if you can show them care and show them that they matter, you will win them over to your side. If you're right, you can find it. If you're wrong, you have a chance to grow. But either way, I think you get to win. And so we have to, I forget where this is, but I think it's from an Adam Young podcast, The Place We Find Ourselves. He talks about connect before you correct. And I love that. I just think that is great. Before I enter into things, am I connecting first? Often we're busy leaders. We don't have time. But if we take that moment, sometimes it only takes 10 seconds to say, hey, how are you doing? Here's something I value about you. I appreciate your enthusiasm. I appreciate how much you care about these things. Let's talk about it. I think that makes all the difference between conflict done well and conflict done poorly. And even thinking about the outcome, what is the outcome? What do you want? Right. Do you want to be right at all costs? Or do you want to build relational capital and do you want to move a relationship forward? I think no matter what the context, it's always going to be the relational thing. So we have to go in, think about that. Hey everyone, Nolan here. Gonna have to jump in and stop today's podcast. Appreciate you listening so far. If you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. And we'll see you next week in part B of this episode. Thank you for listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online.